Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. I'll read beginning in verse 1 through verse 34. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that, while seeing, they may see yet and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30, 60, and a hundredfold. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but it, that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. 
First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Ladies and gentlemen, please direct your attention to the front of the cabin as we review the emergency procedures. They have to have like the worst audio system ever in airplanes, right? That thing is flying through the air, and they have terrible audio systems. Make sure your seat back and folding trays are in their full upright position. And some half of you have checked out already. There are six emergency exits on the aircraft. Take a minute. Locate the exit closest to you. The nearest exit may be behind you. And several others have checked out. Should the cabin experience a sudden loss of pressure, oxygen mask will drop down from above your seat. Put your mask on before helping your kids. In the unlikely event of an emergency requiring evacuation, leave your carry-on items behind. Emergency lighting will lead you to your closest exit. In the event of a water landing, life vests are located below your seats. Some of you have listened to the whole spiel. As we taxi before takeoff, please take a moment to review the safety data card in the seat pocket in front of you. And everybody scrambles for it, right? No, it's yada, yada, yada. We've all heard it before, if you've traveled by air, any at all. Pre-flight instructions. But it's just going through the motions. Potentially about life and death issues. But it's just going through the motions. When we get to Mark chapter 4 here, Jesus in this first recorded parable in the gospel according to Mark says that this is one of the several wrong ways that people will respond or react to his ministry or to his teaching. That is, they, will, they may hear, but they're not really listening. They may listen, but they're not really hearing. So this first parable recorded from Jesus is dealing with how the gospel will be received from him, but it also deals with how the gospel will be received from us. We can take it a step further. It's also exposing how the gospel is being received by us. And it's helpful to see the determining factors of the varied responses that are noted here in the parable. I've titled the sermon, Listen, Hear, Accept, which is very much the thrust of this parable. It is, 
how well we listen, how well we hear, and how well we're making room to accept the truth as it is in Jesus and making room in our lives to live accordingly. Look back at verse 3. Listen to this, Jesus said, drawing attention to it. Listen to what I have to say to you. And immediately following the parable, he says, he closes with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He doesn't stop there. Go to the last verse that we're considering together this morning, verse 20. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit as a result of their listening, hearing, and accepting. So the question for us this morning from Mark chapter 4 is, do we have ears to hear? Do we have wills to listen? Do we have hearts to accept? Hearing is crucial. How we hear determines how we understand. Go back to the middle of this passage, verses 11, 12, and 13. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, Jesus says. But those who are outside get everything in parables. Why? Why does Jesus teach in parables? So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. There is a way, based on what Jesus is saying here, there is a way to hear and yet not understand. There is a way to listen and not respond accordingly or appropriately to the word of God. In fact, 70% of this parable is spent on describing the failure to listen or hear or accept. We could call it the failure of the seed. But as we'll see in a moment, the seed is the preached gospel, the shared gospel of Christ, and we know that the word of God will not return void. So there's no failure in the seed. The failure is in the soil. The failure is in our hearts and our lives, in our response, in our inability and unwillingness to hear and to listen and to accept. There is a stronger emphasis than we can fathom with one simple reading of this passage, the emphasis on to hear. In fact, that verb is used 13 times in Mark chapter 4. Which is no surprise if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, God says. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And God's people were to recite this every day, reminding themselves of their obligation before God. And reminding themselves of who God is on their behalf. Hear, O Israel, listen up, O people of God, he says. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And we shall love him with our whole hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Listening. Hear, O Israel. Listening is the prerequisite for keeping the greatest commandment. So hearing the word of God, listening to the word of God, accepting the word of God, and responding appropriately to the word of God is crucial It is life or death, not just potentially life or death. It is life or death. And Jesus is teaching here in parables. This being the first parable that we've come to, we'll spend a little more time talking about the parable and continue to develop 
the thought over the next few weeks as we consider other parables. A parable is a word picture without explanation. So with that said, only the first portion of our uh, passage this morning is a parable. One through nine is our parable, or one through eight could even be the parable. But then there's the explanation of the parable. The parable itself has no explanation. A parable has a particular point that is made. Now, we run the risk of assigning every thing, every person, every issue in the parable some special meaning. That would result in an allegorical interpretation, which is unhelpful and will lead us astray every time. Now, there's Jesus assigns some aspects of this parable with particular meaning. Obviously, we can trust him in that, but we don't want to read every parable in that way, seeking to make things have certain meanings. Even with this parable here, the seed is scattered on the hard ground, the birds come and take it away. Jesus says that's what Satan does, he comes and takes it away. So a, a true allegorical interpretation would be that all birds are Satan. Some birds act like Satan sometimes, right? You park in the right place, it looks like Satan got a hold of your car. But all birds are not Satan, so it doesn't work that way. Why does Jesus use parables? There are about 40 different parables recorded for us in the Gospels. Why does he teach with parables? The common assumption is that he teaches in parables to make things easier to understand. But it's actually not why he teaches in parables. I mean, even this first parable, as he opens up and deals with the the issue of teaching in parable, it makes it clear that that's not what he's doing. I mean, if, if we consider just the first eight verses of the parable here, It is not even a full eight verses. Beginning in verse 3, the sower went out to sow. Some seed fell beside the road. Birds came and ate it up. Other fell on the rocky ground. It sprouted up quick. It didn't last. Other seed fell among the thorns. It was choked out. Some seed fell into the good soil, and it produced a crop. That is not clear. We are quite familiar with Jesus' explanation, and we're filling in the gaps as we read it. Jesus is not teaching in parables to make it easy to understand. It would be much simpler if that was his goal to simply respond that some people are going to, or simply to say, some people are going to receive my teaching. Other people are not. Some are going to appear to receive it, but it's not going to actually last or make any real life change in them. But that's not what he does. In fact, we could go a step further and say if Jesus used parables to make things easier to understand, then Jesus was not very good at teaching with parables because they're not easy to understand. In verse 10, as soon as Jesus was alone after teaching this parable to his disciple and other followers, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. Tell us what it means. These are his closest companions. They haven't been following him for three years at this point, but but they have heard his teaching with authority. They have seen him accomplish miraculous healings. But they don't understand. Jesus even poses the question to them. Do you not understand this parable? Verse 13. 
how are you going to understand the other parables? There's more coming, he says. So get ready to be constantly saying, we don't understand. Parables are an indirect form of teaching that requires some level of investment. Jesus was not just putting the cookies on the bottom shelf for anyone that wanted to hear. Parables are not homespun stories for lazy minds or disinterested hearts. I think that is a a wrong assumption that we have about them from time to time. I spent a couple of months in the year 2000, just a couple years ago, in Ethiopia. It was the first time I had been there, and they stayed for almost a two-month stint and was spending time with, primarily with an Ethiopian family, but every now and then I would have to find some American missionaries so that I could have running water and take a shower and those things. About once a week, I would go to different missionaries' homes, and I was scheduled to teach in some of the villages in the upcoming weekend. And I had gone to a missionary family's home that week uh, to shower um, and stay overnight one night with them. And I was telling them about the upcoming weekend um, and talking about what I was going to preach, you know, thinking about asking them questions, trying to learn a little bit more about the culture and, and about Christianity among the people uh, that I would be speaking to. And I can remember it like it was yesterday, sitting, eating, even one word, the, the Amharic word for fork, I still remember that that's where I learned it because they didn't bring me a fork and it was still early on. I don't need utensils to eat Ethiopian food now, but at that time I was still trying to figure out exactly how to only use your hands. And I can remember the uh, lady of the house calling the, the servant and saying, hey, bring the foreigner a shuka, which is fork. Bring the lazy foreigner a fork, basically, is what she was saying. Um, so I still remember it. But something else I remember from that conversation, which is much more applicable to the sermon, was I, I don't know that you need to worry about this sermon or that sermon or this text. Just tell them a story. Just tell them a story. And I remember I had been converted at that point, 18 months tops. So I'm a new convert. I'm in Ethiopia, trying to figure out what to teach, asking missionaries these questions. And they said, just tell them a story. And my head is spinning. Like, what do you mean, tell them a story? Like, um, Jesus did not teach in parables to simply aid in understanding. But rather, he used parables to conceal the truth and obscure the meaning in order to get a buy-in, if you will, to generate interest in whose hearts is the Spirit working. Parables create an opportunity for people to come and to find out more. We see that happening here. Jesus' followers walk away from the teaching and say, tell us what it means. Help us understand what you're talking about. And while it creates the opportunity for many to come and find out more, for others it creates a barrier, and they don't understand. Parables can be deliberately obscure. Sometimes that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, that Jesus would be teaching with intentional obscurity so that some may not understand. But it's important for us to realize that parables are a form of teaching, a form of scriptural teaching, that both reveal and conceal the mystery. 
To you, he says, to those who came inquiring more, verse 11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. To you, it's been revealed. But to others, it's concealed. This mystery, it's not a puzzle that you go away and try to solve on your own, putting all the pieces together. It is a divine secret that God himself reveals to his people. This mystery is not something that's unknowable, but it is something that can only be revealed by divine revelation. We're dependent on God to know the mystery of the kingdom. Jesus quotes here from the Old Testament, the passage that we heard earlier from Isaiah chapter 6, justifying his enigmatic teaching style. Verse 12, while seeing they may not perceive and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. That remarkable passage in Isaiah where he sees Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ seated on the throne being worshipped and, and hearing the sound reverberating from heaven, holy, holy, holy. And he recognizes his uncleanness and impurity and then receives forgiveness. And then here's the call of God. Who's going to go and tell others? And quickly, I will. Here am I. Send me, Isaiah says. And then God says, okay, here's the message. Go tell them. Tell them this. Tell them to keep on listening, but they're not going to understand. Tell them to keep on looking into it, but there won't be perception. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, Isaiah. Their ears are dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. The remarkable vision, the amazing commission, followed by the miserable prospect, to which Isaiah says, how long? And God says, you don't know the half of it. It's going to get worse. And that's what Jesus uses here, defending, if you will, justifying this teaching style of concealing some things or using parables. This first parable is a parable about the teaching of Jesus, actually, and how the rest of his teaching will be received or not received. One ancient writer, I I attempted to track down the actual source, but every time it was quoted, it was quoted as the ancient writer. He must be old. Said this about this parable. It needs application, not exposition. Why does it not need exposition? Because Jesus explained it. Jesus has already explained it here in the text, in the second half of our passage this morning. So we come to verse 1. Jesus began to teach again by the sea. He's been by the sea before, and it's been large crowds before, but this time, Mark notes, it's a very large crowd. In fact, it's so large that he uses the boat that was previously prepared back in chapter 3, verse 9. He told his disciples a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. Eventually, the crowd got that big. The boat was still there. Jesus gets on it. They push it out from the sea a bit. He sits down and he begins teaching those who are on the ground, on the shore, literally on the soil. 
that he would be using as an example shortly. And he says, verse 3, we've noted already, listen to this. This, this kind of listening is a hyper-hearing. It is Jesus saying, listen up, listen well, listen fully, listen in depth. He is encouraging, commanding each one of us as well as his original hearers that we need to listen with a hearing that gets past our eardrums through our minds and into our souls. We need to listen to the word of God especially to such a degree that it reverberates out of every fiber of our being. All that is by way of introduction. Then we get to the actual parable. There's a sower, there is seed, and there are soils. There are four types of soils. So if you want three points, sower, seed, soils. The four subpoints on point number three are the first, second, third, and fourth soil. That's creativity at its finest. This sower, he was sowing some seed. Some fell here, some fell there. What do we say about him? He's terribly inaccurate with his sowing. Or maybe he's extremely optimistic as a sower, hoping for the best. We can guarantee one thing, he's not teaching an agriculture class, at least not teaching it well. Maybe he does intend to simply feed the birds. What we can say definitively about this sower is that he sows indiscriminately. Now, we, we are often guilty of sowing where we assume fertility. But not God. He sows indiscriminately. No one is excluded from the seed being sown. This is not a parable saying, ignore the hard soil, ignore the rocky soil, ignore the thorny soil, and give attention to the fertile soil. It's not at all. This is God who is the sower, and he's sowing on all four types. No one is excluded from the seed being sown. The soil is not prejudged. It's not rated one, two, three, and four based on potential potentiality of positive responsiveness. There's no concern on the part of the sower for hitting target groups of any sort. In, in fact, target-style ministry is not biblical ministry. We don't see it anywhere on the pages of the Scriptures. We're, we're not supposed to target people with influence or the down and outs or the rich or the poor or have some kind of melanin-based ministry. That's not at all what we see in the New Testament. God says here, the sower went out to sow. No statistics were considered. No surveys were taken. He simply went out and scattered the seed indiscriminately, proclaiming the good news that Christ has come to save sinners. The sower went out to sow. That's all he says. Some fell here, some fell there, other seed fell elsewhere. There are examples of this all throughout history where we can derive immense encouragement and seek to pattern our lives after. Adnaram Judson happens to be one of my favorite. 
Adnaram Judson went to Burma, ministered seven years before he saw a convert, buried two wives, three kids. He was not sowing in an area of comfort. He served nearly 40 years, spent the first 33 years before he even came back home for a visit. He was not sowing in an area with great promise, but he was faithful. He was scattering the seed of the gospel far and wide. And there are thousands of believers and thousands of churches as a result of him as a sower going out to sow the seed. And that seed, Jesus tells us, is the word. The sower sows the word, verse 14. That word is the same message. Again, this is incredibly helpful for us where we could think that there is a certain gospel to be preached here and a different gospel to be preached there and an altogether different version of that gospel to be preached elsewhere. Not so with God as the sower. It's the same message. There's no alteration depending on the soil. They didn't envelop the gospel in some easier-to-swallow pill for those who are a little harder, that might be a little more reluctant to receive it. It is the exact same seed. It is the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only constant variable in this equation. The truth of God and the truth of his word. The sower sows the word. And then the soil. Which represents, and here's the emphasis that I mentioned already, and we can see Based on the amount given, there's one verse of explanation given to the sower and the seed in verse 14. And then immediately, 15 through 20, Jesus explains, exposits the parable dealing with the four different types of soil, which is for us to hear and see four types of hearers. There are three ways to hear wrongly. And there is only one right way to hear. Let's consider these four soils. Verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. This hearer has a hard heart. This person has their ears plugged with no interest in hearing the truth of God. These hard-hearted hearers are not necessarily running around out there somewhere. Some of them are in here. Some of them are here in person. And though they're not sitting like this, you, if you are one, are checked out. Not giving attention, not listening, not taking it to heart. You've heard it before. You know that the nearest exit row may be behind you. You know to put on your oxygen mask before helping the little ones that are traveling with you. And so you pay no attention. You take no interest 
and your heart remains unresponsive. Now, if you are paying attention right now, and you see the way that the, Jesus explains it here, the word is sown, and immediately Satan comes and takes it away. This group, and you if you're in this group, you are not excused because Satan steals the seed. Jesus does say Satan comes and steals away the word which has been sown in them. But that does not cancel out verse 9, which says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, what Jesus reveals is that you taking the word of God lightly and not listening well and not hearing and not accepting and not responding appropriately is evidence of you collaborating with this prince of darkness, the devil himself. Jesus says to us all, be careful that your heart is not hard. Listen and hear and accept the truth that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, you and me. That's the first type of hearer, the hearer with a hard heart. Jesus continues in a similar way, verse 16. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. These hearers are shallow-hearted hearers. Their heart's not as hard on the outside, but it's hard underneath. There's a shallow depth, which produces, as a result, temporary impressions. Sprouts up fast. There may be a quick response to the gospel, but no lasting effect. The shallowness of the heart creates an impulsivity in the heart. There may even be an enthusiastic initial embrace. But there's no stability. There's no roots. What that looks like, as as we see it happening, is a spurious conversion. And they fade as rapidly as they sprout. They fizzle fast. Now, they're, they're not completely careless. If this is you, you're not completely careless nor inattentive like soil number one. Therefore, there's a temptation to think, okay, of of your condition and to think that you're okay. Well, I I did respond in some manner. You may have even responded enthusiastically in a spurious, impulsive manner. But if there hasn't been ongoing effect in your life, if there's no lasting effect, if the impressions of God's word were only temporary and you've begun to fade now, then you have a shallow heart. Those in this second soil group, when they're confronted by normal life, it says affliction and persecution, when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, that's called normal Christian life. But when trials and difficulties come, these people do not continue on. You know if that's been true of you. When the pressure's on, you throw it, you just throw in the towel. There's no stick to itiveness. 
Lack of perseverance is your dominant theme. This group, we could deem them fair-weather followers. The word sinks into the soil of your heart a little bit, but it just doesn't take root. It doesn't grip you. The soul's soil is only a veneer in this situation. Now, when we look around in our day, the result of this is known biblically as apostasy. We've created a new, new word that's in vogue in our culture called deconstruction. Biblically, it's apostasy. They went out from us, 1 John 2, 19, but they were not really of us, the apostle writes, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They fail to realize, we might say, that it is, as the old hymn writer said, the way of the cross leads home. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. I shall ne'er get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. In a similar way, there are those whom the seed falls who have shallow hearts, shallow, impulsive hearts. And Jesus continues, verse 18, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So we had a hard heart, a shallow heart. This is the divided heart. There's obedience to some extent. There's understanding at some level. There's assent to the truths that are proclaimed and taught. There may even be affections aroused in the individual. It may result in the individual abstaining from things that are condemned in the Word of God. It may even result in the individual adopting some things that are expected from the Word of God. But at the end of the day, the Word does not have its full effect. Now, often these third soil folks look like the most despairing. They are the ones who are the most full of worry, who are the most weighed down by anxieties. There are corroding cares and fanciful delusions and unrelenting anxieties that grip them. That's exactly the way that Jesus describes it here. You can imagine a good plant coming up and it being gripped and choked out by the weeds and the thorns. And he says here clearly, that's the danger, that our lives would be divided in that way, that we would give those things a root. Remember, all these things are coming up from the soil of our lives. So when we have allowed our heart to be divided, our lives and affections to be divided in this way, then it only makes sense that these thorns and thistles are going to come in and they're going to choke out the word and it will not have its full effect. Not only a divided heart, we could also call it a preoccupied heart. And it is a result, it's divided and preoccupied 
as a result of having irreconcilable loyalties. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. 1 John 2, again, is helpful here. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We can go all the way back to the garden and see that that was the reality in the very beginning of the fall. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And then towards the very end of scriptures, it's still a problem with humanity. It's a problem that we all face. In fact, of these first three soils, which are three terrible types of hearers, we are probably, the majority of us, probably most prone to being third soil type hearers having inordinate desires for other things, possessions and power and prestige and pleasure. We could go on and on. But these things destroy the effect of the seed of the word of God in our hearts and lives. So it it fails to have its full effect that God intends. And it results in us being divided and preoccupied. Jesus, describing it here in this way, is saying this is not the way to be a hearer. Don't be this kind of hearer. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just tell us what not to be, how not to hear. He doesn't just say, don't have a hard heart, don't have a shallow heart, don't have a divided heart. He actually offers lots of incentive for us to have a fruitful heart. Verse 20, and those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Quite the simple conclusion. They receive the word of God, the truth of the gospel into their soul's depths. And as a result, thoroughly obey it and apply it to every sphere of life, hating sin, loving Christ. Now, the experience differs widely. It's wonderful application here from Jesus, explanation and application. It differs widely, some 30, some 60, some 100. But always fruitful. Always faith, always repentance. This heart is not hard of hearing. This heart is not shallow. This heart is not divided. The heart is receptive and fertile. And as a result of that, it's responsive. So when the word of God gets in, it comes right back out. In obedience and in proclamation and in sowing the seed. The teaching of Jesus, generally speaking, the parables of Jesus, more specifically speaking, and this parable, even more particularly, creates two categories. Again, back to verse 11, it tells us this. To you, he says, as followers, including the twelve, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. There are two groups of people. There are insiders and outsiders. There are those who understand and those who misunderstand. Everybody thinks they understand. But notice the filtering process that Jesus uses here is not based on a thick skull, but a hard heart. Jesus is encouraging us and describing what our lives and ministry may look like When he tells us that people are going to listen, hear, accept, and respond differently to his message initially 
and to our message eventually. His teaching in this manner and the sharing of the gospel in general, even for us, is not unlike the pillar of cloud that separated the Israelites as they were fleeing from the Egyptians. The very same cloud that was condemning the Egyptians was protecting Israel. What resulted in blindness for Egypt, the enemies of God's people, was light and revelation for God's people. And Jesus is doing the same thing here with, these, with these, this parable and these parables and his teaching and gospel proclamation and preaching and teaching continues to do the same. In conclusion, keep sowing. How should we sow? Widely, indiscriminately. Again, we're reading the parable wrong if we think Jesus is saying, find those hearts that are ready to hear and share with them. Good luck finding them. I don't know that my life looked fertile and ready to hear the gospel when I was impacted and changed by hearing it. I'm guessing that's mostly true for most of us. So wide, so indiscriminately. And keep the seed ready. Be gospel prepared. Live constantly in the reality and awareness of sins forgiven. And what the gospel has done for you, so that you too are ready to proclaim it and share how God has changed your life, who he is, and what he's done for all who repent and believe. Keep sowing, keep the seed ready, keep listening. Listen to the word of God as your own eyes read it. As others read it, listen closely to the truth of God. And not just keep listening, but keep hearing. Listen close and hear full. Hear with your heart and not just your mind. And keep accepting. Allow it to filter in, which produces obedience. So keep listening closely. Keep hearing fully. Keep accepting to the point of obedience. And as we sow, widely and indiscriminately, some seed is going to be lost immediately, eaten by the birds. It happened for Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Keep sowing. Some seed is lost eventually, burned up by the sun because of shallowness. It happened for Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Keep sowing. Some seed is lost ultimately, being choked out by the weeds. It happened for Jesus. It will happen For us, do not be discouraged. Keep sowing. But also keep listening, hearing, and accepting. That is receiving the word of God. How do we keep from the seed of the word of God being lost for us immediately, eventually, or ultimately? By receiving the word Immediately, Be quick to hear the word of God so it's not snatched away by Satan. Who wants to be a partner in crime with him? Receive the word immediately. Receive it deeply so that it isn't withered by persecution or affliction or normal life. 
and receive the word exclusively. Don't take anything as serious as you take the word of God. This keeps other concerns from cropping up and strangling it out. Receive it immediately. Receive it deeply. Receive it exclusively. Don't be a first soil hearer. Guard the word. Don't be hard-hearted. Receive it more willingly. Cultivate your heart to hear the truth of God. Don't be a second soil hearer. Persevere. Don't be a shallow-hearted hearer. Establish sturdy roots with Christ as your foundation. And don't be a third soil hearer. Don't be a divided heart hearer. Remove the clutter. Loosen your grip on the less important things. Do be a fourth soil type hearer. Listen to the word. Hear the truth of God and accept it into every fiber of your being. Do not allow a fifth type of soil, which isn't mentioned here at all, because God is a faithful sower. We aren't always so faithful. The fifth soil got no seed at all. This is the fault of the sower, of us, if we fail to sow. Let's Proclaim the truth that Christ came to save his people far and wide. May God help us to do that. Now, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, it is reserved for fourth soil hearers. The table is for those who have listened and heard and accepted the gospel, who are hoping only in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who have repented and are repenting of their sin before him. As we come to him, as we come to the table, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded again of who it is that's invited us to the table. So we look to God. We look up to him and consider his greatness, and his glory. The invitation has come from our heavenly Father through Christ. He is the unchanging God who mercifully and graciously has saved us. He's God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the God who has loved us with an everlasting love. Let's look to him, look up to him as we come to the table. But it's not just an opportunity to look up to him. We should look in or within as well. When we look up at who God is, we're able to better see and understand how far short we fall. Recognizing our sin. We have instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding coming to the Lord's Supper. There are warnings for those who will come to eat and to drink. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, the apostle continues, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we we look up at how great God is, but we also recognize the ongoing need that we have, and we consider if there are any sins that need to be confessed before the Lord. We don't live, not a single one of us live a secret life. The Lord sees it all. We are laid bare before him. 
And we are warned here in this passage that to be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus means to come in a way that dishonors Christ. When you come to the table, as we come, it's a time for us to consider our hearts and our lives before our God. A time for us to clear our accounts with him, we might say, to confess our sin, acknowledge his forgiveness. It's a time to make sure that we are genuinely clinging to Christ alone for our salvation and our righteousness. It's also a time for us as we come to the table to look back. It it points our minds and our hearts back. This is what Jesus did at the Passover meal when he established the Lord's Supper on the evening before his death. He used elements, used the elements of the bread and the cup to instruct us about the cross to show that his body was being broken for us and his blood, represented by the cup, was shed for us. Jesus actually says this is the blood of the new covenant. He is our better priest and better sacrifice. The blood of the Lamb of God, the Lamb who came to take away the sin of the world, his blood is sufficient to save sinners like you and like me. The bread and the cup, as we come and take them, they point us to the cross and what happened there for us. But it's also an opportunity for us to take a look around, recognizing that we're not alone. We're not lone rangers in this faith. We're part of a church family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We're composed as a church of different people with different experiences and various issues, but we all have two things in common. We are sinners, and we are united together by faith in Christ. And so we look around and and use the opportunity as a regular reminder that we are right with Jesus, and we're seeking to be right and have fellowship with one another because of who Christ is and what he's done. If one or both of these things is not true for you, if you're not right with God and if you aren't right with his people, then you should abstain from the supper and seek to make those things right. If they are true, then we have the privilege of coming and enjoying this meal and looking around, acknowledging the bond of unity that is ours in Christ. So we look up at him, we look within at ourselves, we look back at the cross and what Christ did for us, we look around at one another, and we look forward proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus actually says he will not drink this cup again until he does so in the coming of his kingdom. He too is anticipating another meal. As we come, we're anticipating another meal, not on the first Sunday in September, but we're looking ahead to another meal with Jesus and with his people to the marriage supper of the Lamb when the entire church for all time is gathered together to boast in the great saving work of Jesus. God has prepared the feast Based on the work of his son at the cross, we come together looking forward. As we come to the table, may God help us to be reminded yet again that forgiveness and fellowship are at the heart of our lives together as God's children. Parents, you be mindful of your children. Help guide them with regard to coming to the table. If you are in Christ and have a meaningful relationship with a local church, please Come, you're welcome to come to the table with us. If you are not in Christ, 
As I mentioned, the table is, is not for you. It's for those who are in Christ and living their life for Jesus. But while I am asking you to not come to the table, I would like to also strongly encourage and compel you to run to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin and placing all your hope in him. Don't be a hard-hearted, shallow-hearted, divided-hearted hearer. Hear the word of the living God. Listen and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. Let's pray. And afterwards, Megan will come and play. And we'll come down the middle aisles, take and return around the outside. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word that it is sure and steadfast and that you have promised that it will not return void. God, accomplish your saving purposes through your word, we pray. And aid us now as we come, on the one hand as individuals, on the other hand collectively as a body, celebrating, acknowledging the work that you have accomplished, saving us and uniting us together by faith in Jesus. God, we thank you that his body was broken so that ours wouldn't have to be, and that his blood was shed for the remission of our sins, and that our unrighteousness has been dealt with sufficiently, and you have robed us with his everlasting righteousness. We thank you for that. We praise you for it. God, we pray that you'll help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth as we observe the taking of the body and bread, the, body, the bread as body and the cup as the blood of the Lord Jesus. Be our help as we seek to honor you in Christ's name. Amen.